know what time it is. It's Christmas! Dennis the Menace. The level of people suffering from obesity and diabetes has exploded in recent years. There is now an unprecedented proportion of people suffering from cardiovascular disease due to Western societies eating more than ever and not maintaining a healthy, balanced diet. For years, cholesterol has been blamed as the primary culprit due to its ability to, ability to clog arteries causing heart attacks or strokes. Professor Sharif Sultan denies this fact. In today's podcast, I speak to a controversial yet globally recognised endovascular consultant. Professor Sharif Sultan boasts 30 years of endovascular experience and heads a team of dedicated vascular specialists fo- focusing on prevention of cardiovascular mortality and morbidity. He has pioneered some of the most intricate stroke and heart attack prevention surgeries and has over 120 international peer-reviewed publications with 32 clinical awards to his name. He is a man who has saved countless lives to imminent death. But Sharif has a very different philosophy to many medics. He doesn't believe in modern-day medicine and the tight grip the pharmaceutical industry holds over clinicians. In this podcast, we go back to basics and discuss what is truly important in life. We talk about the physiological benefits of receiving a hug or a kiss, the importance of being in a loving relationship, and the detrimental effects a bad one can have to you and your health. We speak about the bacteria living in every person's gut and the important role it plays to picking a partner. We discuss whether vitamins are actually worthwhile taking and what foods really are important to take. We also talk about the science behind intermittent fasting and why it's the way forward. And also how the National Healthcare Service of the country can be uprooted to turn it around. This podcast is extremely fascinating and one I feel you will get a lot of value from, guys. I have definitely changed aspects of my lifestyle after speaking to this guy. As always, please pass this on to a friend who you think would benefit from listening and continue to like the page, share on Instagram and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify. Thank you again for your continued support. You really are the reason I am so passionate about this little creative platform that I have. Episode 24, Pills Are Not The Answer. Let's get this party started. Professor Sharif Sultan, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, Dan. Thank you so much for having me on your fantastic, magnificent podcast show. <laughs> Thank you very much for taking the time out to, to speak to me today. Um, how are you? I'm very well, thank God. Are you are you tired? I mean, you've you've been on call. You said all day today, so that's not at all. I don't get tired easily, yeah. and it's always a fun to operate. And when you love what you do, you'll never get tired. And I tell you one thing: if you love what you do, you'll never work one day in your life. You truly believe that? I sure do. So at the start of the show, um, Sharif, it's okay if I call you Sharif or Mr. Sultan or perfect. Professor Sultan. Sharif is perfect, man. He, he has so many titles, I don't even know which what to call him himself. So Sharif, what we do is we normally ask our guests to describe themselves in a couple of words. Can you do that for us, please? Very good. I'm a vascular surgeon, professor of vascular surgery at National University of Ireland, Galway. I have 19 patents in my name. I have 32 international uh, um, uh, trophies um, uh, in breaking uh, vascular surgery frontiers. I'm a pioneering endovascular interventionist 
and I work very hard and I love my patients. So at the start of the show, we do a little game called association. This is a word, a phrase or a sentence. It's just to get uh, the people who are listening at home a bit of an idea of, of, of who or what you are about as a person. Um, so if you could just tell us what you think, the first thing that comes to your head, I'm going to say a few words out loud and can just uh, say what comes to, your, comes to your head. Okay, so diet. Is the most important thing in your life. Good versus bad cholesterol. Nothing like that. Cholesterol is always good. The pharmaceutical industry. Corrupted. Favorite color? Green. Love. Much more important than lifestyle. Research. Is the only way to go forward by publishing. Your pet hate, Sharif. I don't. Oh, fair enough. Sh- uh, your childhood hero? Rocky. Favorite food? Falafel. Your vision? You cannot fly except when you spread your wings. Egypt? Land of civilization. Fishing? My favorite hobby. Ethics? It's crucial to have a very strong ethics in order to excel. Your favorite book? Berlin. Success? Impossible to achieve without hard work. And failure? Not an option. The Irish Health Service? Broken and in an abyss. Stem cells. Total waste of time. And aging. You can't reverse. Sharif, I think it would be fair to say that you be, well, you might not say this, but you're a controversial man. That's for sure. That's the only way to go forward. If you have a letter of thinking and you don't stay in the queue and taking the hit from everybody, you have to think, you have to be smart enough to understand that there is always another side of a story. But is, is that difficult for you or has that been difficult for you and your family that you feel as though, you know, for other physicians previously, maybe before you might have seen some of the, the effects of these studies, but not have had the sort of the, the power or the willpower to, to be able to go forward and put their hand up and say, no, this is wrong. That's why I have reached where I am, because I think, I question, I start to study, I research, I publish. And the most important that I don't sit on the fence and saying, do no harm. I have to protect my patients. And the only way to protect my patient is to get the truth out. Have you ever questioned your confidence or your ability? It's been questions every day. And if I don't have a work ethics and strong belief for what I do, I will never reach where I am. We're going we're to start off by, I'm going to say a kind of a phrase or a sentence that you've actually said yourself. And, and, and just, again, sort of like uh, the, the association game, just kind of speak around the topic or subject for me. So cholesterol has no link to heart disease? We have published a paper in the British Medical Journal of October 2018. We have reviewed 1.3 million patients published. And we discovered that the etiology of having a problem with your arteries is inflammation, not cholesterol. Meaning that when you have high sugar content stress, this is due scarring of your endothelium or the inner lining of your arteries and causes the problem of cardiovascular disease. Sugar is your worst enemy. Cholesterol is your 
best friend. Cholesterol is exactly like the fire brigade that comes in trying to put the fire of the sugar. And sugar is in everything that you touch currently. I mean, let's reel it back a little bit for a second, because for the extent of my lifetime, and even within my medical schooling, I've been told that there's good cholesterol, there's bad cholesterol. And this is what everyone else has been told before. You said in the association game, there's only good cholesterol. Why is it that this is going against the norm and, and everything that we've been taught in school and everything that the research has told us before has, has said this, but you're saying elsewhere. elsewhere. Okay, let's go back a little bit. Mm-hmm. You need to read history, understand history to see exactly how they brainwashed you. Eisenhower was an American hero, whether during the war or as a president. He died from a heart attack. The American loved him, so they tried to blame somebody. Eisenhower used to smoke about 80 to 90 cigarettes per day. He adored his bar of chocolate. However, they decided to go and see what's going on. So they hired a guy called Ansel. He's a, a physiologist to see exactly what happened for him. So they went on and had big meetings. And they looked at, they have to blame somebody for the death of this guy. Yeah. And they looked at sugar. They looked at fat. They looked at smoking. So the smoking industry is very strong at that time in the United States. Don't come near it. So they let it go. Sugar industry is much more powerful than the military industry in the United States. So they tell them not to go near it. Coca-Cola. So who's after that was the cholesterol. Let's blame it on cholesterol. And this is where everything started. So Ansel started to manipulate his data in order to look at cholesterol as a bad guy. You said a bad and good cholesterol. Mm. By the way, the bad and good cholesterol is not cholesterol. It's the car that's carrying cholesterol from the liver and to the liver. So when you say that LDL is not a cholesterol, it is the vehicle that carry the the, um, cholesterol back or forward from the liver. And the whole idea is you're looking for apolipoprotein A and apolipoprotein B. Again, cholesterol is not your enemy. It's the most important molecule in your body. It's responsible for all the hormones, for your stress hormones, for your thyroid function, for your testosterone, for your estrogen, for your progesterone. If you lower it, you will be completely utterly lacking of energy. You have no idea how it affects your mood. You get depressed, tired, and then a lot of things else are going to go bad. There is no evidence for cholesterol medication in primary prevention. It's a criminal act to give cholesterol for primary prevention and there's no evidence in any publication is of any beneficial role. You said at the very, very start of the, of the show here that the pharmaceutical industry, our big pharma, uh, I suppose just to paraphrase, is evil. Would, is, is that something you truly believe? Now, they are running a business and it's a very strong business. They must hide complications. They have to leverage the statistics, what we usually call statistic deception, they're using a rephrase of relative risk reduction rather than absolute risk reduction, Mm -hmm. so that if it's 0.1% with relative risk reduction, it will be 36%. So just try and put that into layman's terms for for, for myself. Basically that, if you're going to say that the benefit is 1% with absolute risk reduction, when you do it for relative risk reduction, it will be 36%. So it will be augmented 36-fold when you do this statistical deception. And this is how the pharma used to publish all the results regarding relative 
risk reduction. It's a problem. A lot of these companies are very, very professional, don't do that. But some of them, in order to penetrate the market, they use this deceptive way. And in fact, since the new regulation that came through the European Union in 2004, 2005, this has been abolished. Thank God that we don't have this problem coming in. However, the legacy is still chasing us. And that's why we are dealing with this legacy currently. Mm. We published about the statistical deception in 2016 in the British Medical Journal also. I'm going to touch off that a little bit later on, uh, folks, but I, I want to kind of rewind for a second, Sharif, if we can, to a young, uh, a young Mr. Sultan, uh, fresh and ready to go, just out of medical school and deciding to pack all his bag and come to, to Ireland. You're originally from Egypt, uh, Sharif, yeah? Sure I am. And what had mooted you to come across to, to, to the land of saints and scholars? It's a very interesting story. I have finished my uh, training. I was chief resident in a biggest university hospital um, in Egypt uh, called Ancient University. It's the oldest university on earth, by the way. It's about 5,000 years old. And then I was looking forward for uh, an opportunity to be um, uh, a lecturer in the university. Um, and then there was a lot of adverse events happened, have nothing to do with me at all. It just put it this way. Um, I didn't um, um, uh, have enough, uh, what we usually say currently in Ireland, uh, brown envelopes to get that position. Somebody else had it and I was straightforward. It's a corruption. So I decided, that's it. If I am the best of the best over there, yeah. scoring the highest mark and I didn't have this opportunity for the future is not the land for me. So I packed, in fact, I had an interview and I had a job in London. However, by the time the my paper have finished to go to London. That job have vanished because the consultant that I, I was about to work under him have uh, went sick and the position vanished. Believe it or not, within two days, I got a phone call from a colleague of mine in St. James's Hospital in Dublin asking me if I'm interested to get a job over there. I said, for sure. And the story did begin. I already had the, bought the tickets to London, so the only thing that I needed just to get the British Midland from London to Dublin. Mm. I don't think British Midland do exist at the current moment. They just disappeared. Okay. But I'm still here. <laughs> so from from Dublin then uh, to, to Galway, where you now reside, uh, was, it, was it a straightforward move or were you, fact, were you working in Dublin for a while? Or I, I went to Dublin, Liverpool. I went to um, uh, Saint-Étienne, Lyon. I went to Canada. I went to Arizona Heart Institute in Phoenix and then uh, Galway. Okay. And was, was endovascular uh, surgery always on the horizon? Or what exactly was your, you know, what really, what are you passionate about? In, believe it or not, in uh, 1989, Palm, young Palmaz, who have created this tent called Palmaz Tent, mm -hmm. was visiting Egypt to um, uh, popularize this tent for uh, uh, decompression of the liver for patients with portal hypertension. And I said, wow, this is great. On the same day, the head of radiology, his mother had a translumbar angiogram, which you don't do that now at all, and they dissected his aorta. So she was about to die, and then Palma said, I can help by putting this stent in. So I helped him at that time. Everybody was afraid to scrub with him because they said, oh, this is experimental, the patient is going to die. This lady survived, and I become a hero. And at that time, the penny dropped. Remember, 89, nobody knew anything about endovascular. Yeah. 
When I moved to Dublin, I started the endovascular department in James's, which is becoming a very thriving. I had pioneered a lot of techniques since then, and now we do a lot of techniques that nobody else do on Earth. Speaking to a, to a few colleagues of yours, was it, was it, is it true that um, an operating room zero was created for you specifically within the, uh, the clinic in, in Galway? I have to um, uh, say that uh, Mr. Jimmy Sheehan um, um, have supported me. He have seen the vision that I had, and we have built the first Alora hybrid suite um, on Earth in um, the Goldwood Clinic. And in fact, we had visitors from across the world, from China, from Japan, from Australia, from India, from the Middle East, from the UK, to come and see this suite. It was state-of-the-art. We put it in 2009, and it was an icon. And in fact, I'm proud to share in this development. I mean, Sharif, at the same time as all this was going on, you were under huge scrutiny with the pharmaceutical industry and also from some of your colleagues. How was it that you were able to, I suppose, create a a, a space within Ireland? I mean, world medicine at the same time as the pharmaceutical industry is essentially blackening your name. It's very important to understand that the minute you get your head outside the trench, people will shoot at you. Mm. And always remember, nobody likes success. They'll try to beat you down the ground. They'll start mocking you. They'll start questioning you everything. You have to look at everything, you have to assess everything, and you have to have a statesman approach. A lot of people will mock everybody because he have the power to do what they're doing. And remember, knowledge is power. And mm-hmm. the more knowledge you have, the more power you have. So what I've done, statesman approach, let them bark, I'm going forward. And what happened, everybody looked at them and said, you know something, he was right, you were wrong. And that's happening every day in my life. You were right. We are sorry. So you're, you're still continually receiving apologies from colleagues, from other people saying, we, we'd like to apologize here. You were actually continuing in the wrong. Here. Some of right them here. are very, very good, professional. Yes. But you know, you always have the ignorant. You have the people <laughs> who are always negative. I don't like to be around them because they'll drain your energy. I look at them and said, you know something? I'm not missing anything by staying away from all of you. Would you call yourself uh, an optimistic, uh, positive man? For sure. Without that, I'll tell you, I'll be very, very, very sad. But you'd also call yourself a realist at the same time. You recognize it was one of the questions uh, that I asked, well, brief questions within the association game, because this, I mean, the, the dogs in the street know that the health service executive in Ireland at the moment is on its absolute knees. We have a semi-privatized system, which is, is essentially not functioning. But not just that, outside of Ireland, we have the NHS and also the private, the private sector and system within, within the United States. There's no um, ideal way to bring healthcare forward. Or what is the ideal way to bring healthcare forward? Do you, do you see it? When I came to Galway, it was a dream. I used to do everything that I want. Really? Working from 8 until 10 o'clock every day. No problem whatsoever. Until they're starting to hire more people. I used to go open the door on the uh, CEO of the hospital. There's nothing to stop me from meeting them. Currently now, you can't, the amount of layers between you and 
any big administrator is so much that you're going to say it's not worth the hassle to try to get this meeting. And if even you go to that meeting, nothing will happen. Mm. The problem that we have in the health service on Ireland, accountability. There's too many chiefs, not enough people on the ground to do the work. Every time you get somebody promoted to be a manager, so who's going to do the front service? Everybody look at you, but we need a manager. Fantastic, you have a manager, but somebody have to wash the patient, somebody have to look after the patient, somebody have to do the basic stuff. Go to any accident emergency. Remember when the Leo Vatican came and said that don't take holidays over Christmas? Yes. I'm on call from the 21st until the 4th of January. Okay, so, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not shy about it. I'm delighted. I love my work. I have no problem. The problem is not that at all. The problem is you are hiring people that's not fit for the purpose. The reason for that, nobody wants to work in this system. They're underpaid, totally underpaid. They work very hard, but it's like a small boat, everybody trying to go in a different direction yeah. and stand still. You need people taking decision. You need to improve the infrastructure, which is currently one of the major things. It's unhumane for a patient to wait that amount in accident and emergency for a bed. I never seen that. I go around the whole world. I put input and proctoring a lot of people, and everybody's delighted to be there. However, in my hospital, every now and then, every week I have one theater closed because there's not enough nurses, not enough um, spaces or whatever it is. It's like a pilot who you don't have an airplane to fly. And they tell you that you have a waiting list. Definitely will have a waiting list because the whole system is not working. The only way to work this system, you have to have a lean management system. You have to have only the people that make things happen. Currently now, where I work, there's more management people than patients, which is alarming. <laughs> the total capacity of the hospital is 850. And I think that we have tripled the amount or quadrupled the amount of management for that. I don't know. It just doesn't make sense. Everybody's working very hard. Everybody doing his best. But the problem is that you need to get f more frontline stuff. You have to build a brand new hospital in Galway in order to have more ability to treat the patient. The current situation is doomed. It's total failure. It's totally unsafe. We need to look at it, and it's a wake-up call. Our administration have raised that issue in a very, very elegant way with the politician. But you remember one thing. It took Galway 10 years to get approval for the outer city bypass. It will take at least another 10 years to get this approval, if it will ever happen in my life. But I tell you that if it was my hand, I'll go get a big check from the um, um, European Central Bank and I build this hospital and I don't wait for the HSC and make the patient pay a little bit in order to go forward. Otherwise, we are going in a vicious circle that's impossible to solve. So you said get the patient to pay a little bit for the appropriate treatment. Now, as I already said and alluded to earlier, we have the, the healthcare system and, and service over in the United States, which is essentially run by pharma and big business. 
Is that the kind of the pinnacle or what we're trying to achieve as well? I had a visit to one of the biggest hospitals in the United States, the fourth biggest hospital, Yale University. Mm-hmm. If you're sick, you'll be treated for free. The catchment area for the whole New Haven hospital is 4.2 million, exactly like Ireland. And we have only one thing in New Haven is New Haven Hospital. They have 1,500 beds, run like a clock. They're doing everything as a day procedure. Nobody stay in the hospital except you need an ICU or HDU bed. The problem, again, over there, they realize the importance of front-line stuff. Mm. And that's being given top priority in recruiting. That's what we need. You need to have a lot of nurses in theater. You have to have a lot of doctors on the ground. You have to have senior medics available. You cannot allow the system to be run by junior doctors. That's the culprit. You cannot allow the GPs to close their practice at 5 o'clock. That's impossibility. It's called primary care center. It's like a hospital, but in the community. I was in Sweden. In Sweden over there, in Malmo, they have 56 buildings. This is where they give the Nobel Prize, by the way. So if you have a vascular problem, you go to the GP, he discovers that you have a vascular problem. So remember over there, in, it's a very harsh winter. They give you a code. You drive your car and you put that code in and you go into this um, um, underground where you find the accident emergency for vascular. The whole building is vascular. It has its own CT scan, MRI, no problem. If you have a pediatric problem, you go directly to pediatric. If you have a chest problem, you go directly to the chest. In here, currently, you don't have this system at all. After 5 o'clock, you have the West Doc, and then West Doc come to see you, and then he can't prescribe anything because there is no pharmacy open until next day. So basically, you are closing everything and dumping everything in the accident emergency. That's why you have this problem, the accident emergency. Mm-hmm. What you need is GPs that be able to dispense medication so that nobody goes to the accident emergency. At the same time, the accident emergency have to be for cases that doesn't, does require to be seen by senior people. However, if you need an X-ray, all primary care centers in the United States have the ability to do an X-ray and even an ultrasound. We have to allow this to happen. All everything now is automated. You have a machine that gives you your urea, your creatinine, your FBC, your kidney function test, your liver function test immediately. You don't need to go to hospital for that. The problem that they send the patient for the hospital to be checked, why you cannot do that in the community? The whole system is upside down. The problem also that you have very strong, and I mean very strong unions. You try to change anything, they go on strike. And that's wrong. We have to accommodate each other. The problem is not how much you're going to get paid or how much more work you're going to do. is how much it's safety for the patient to be treated in the right way. And then after that, you look at your hours and everything. Remember how long it took to negotiate regarding seeing uh, 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 kids under six or um, anybody above the age of 70 to get a, a free uh, medical card. The problem arises within anything you want to change. The union's going to kick about it so much that sometimes people don't want the headache. The whole system is not working. You cannot fix the GP alone. You cannot fix the accident emergency alone. You cannot 
fix the hospital alone. You cannot fix the nursing home. I finish the patient, I can discharge them. They're blocking the bed. Why? The family can take them. That's all right. We understand that. But the problem that the infrastructure for nursing home is so fragile and weak that's impossible to get the patient out in time. So it blocks the bed in the hospital. At the same time, you have more patients coming in. So this vicious circle needs a broader vision to be fixed. We'd be fools to think that everything has kind of stayed the same. The reality is, Sharif, that the, the average level of survival or age of survival has, has increased thanks to the advances in uh, medicalization, in general, just uh, medical devices, etc., etc. Um the question I have for you is, what is the ultimate goal of medicine? Is it for longevity of lifetime or is it for human uh, enhancement? So just start with very simple question. It would be useless that you are 120. However, you are lying in the bed. You cannot communicate with the outside world. There is no quality of life. So you define living is living with a quality of life. Mm-hmm. That's the first thing. When I start training, when I get to 75 years old, coming in, and this is 30 years ago, I said, oh my God, what am I going to do it? In the middle of my training, when I get at 85 years of age, I said, oh my God, what's going on? By the time I finish my training, I get 95. Currently, I'm operating on 105 and 107. Wow. Currently, I usually say that 80 is the new 60. <laughs> 70 is the new 50. 60 is the new 40, with all what it means. We have improved our life beyond your imagination. However, still a lot of people intoxicate their body to which that they might be 40 or 50 years of age, but they're looking like 90. So living to excess. That's exactly. Your physiological age is the way that we look at it. It's how your brain, lungs, liver, kidney, and arteries are affected. So if you protect them, and if you are living healthy, you'll be healthy. But it will be crazy if you are 40 years of age, drinking at least 40 units of alcohol per week, smoking, and taking recreation drugs. Your body will be physiologically at 90 years of age. And the amount of complication from that is so severe that sometimes it's unrepairable. Is it as simplistic as that to say to people, look, eat well, have good exercise, you know, just to say, don't smoke, watch your diet. Is it, is it as simple as uh, to say that to people now living in first world countries when the whole sort of structure of, of, of the country has been built to, to live to excess and... I don't know, it's, is it very, very difficult? Obviously for yourself as a physician, you have people coming into you and they have multiple, multiple comorbidities. You know, it's very, very, it's an easy thing to say to stop smoking, change your diet, but they never actually listen to you. Is, is, this, is that frustrating or how, what do you do there? Okay, so let's look at it from different direction. Google had a very big division for health promotion. They switched off. The reason for that, they found all the people who were linked to it are the people who are health freaks. So said that there's no advantage because there's no need for it. And they start doing other stuff, artificial intelligence and machine learning and all this stuff in a different direction. 
So, so sorry, what you're saying here is that Google wanted to make people more health conscious, but pe- no, people weren't just weren't listening. Exactly. So they started doing other stuff and they started creating other programs. What I mean from all of that is that you need to look at, when I get somebody telling me that you need to change lifestyle, lifestyle doesn't mean that you have to dump your um, um, Guinness and your vodka and your uh, um, smoking habits. The, what, the first thing in changing lifestyle, you have to be happy. Without happiness, you're totally wasting your time. You have to have good love. Best thing is the unconditional love. You remember, you're now a very busy guy. You are in Belfast. Your family is in Galway. The best thing I think that you get is that unconditional love phone call that you get from your mom or dad on Saturday or Sunday. How are you, Dennis? How are you doing? That unconditional love that all of us, we miss because there's nothing behind it. Next to that is the physical love. If you have a good girlfriend or if you have a good boyfriend, that's all what we need. The physical intimacy and happiness. All the studies show that if you take a a kiss on the cheek, it goes directly to the heart. If you get a kiss on the lips, it goes directly to the brain and the heart and make you so happy and control alt and delete every bad thing that happened and it push you forward so much that nothing in earth could equate to that. Is it as simple as that, Sharif? That's the first thing. Next to that is you have to stop poisoning yourself. You get a lot of headaches. You're taking a lot of non-steroidal anti-inflammatory over the counter. You get stroke, you get heart attack, you could get a cancer with that. Or you could get renal failure even. Or you're starting having a lot of other stuff that's like supplements or vitamins or whatever it is. There's no evidence going to benefit you. You need... To look at yourself. I'm a 35 years old guy and I'm not feeling well. Why is that? I have a very bad job. I have a nagging girlfriend or a nagging boyfriend. I have somebody who's destroying my confidence day in, day out. This is what you need to change first before you seek any medical advice. Mm-hmm. Because you're 35, you're not supposed to be sick at all, except if you have something very rare condition or you have a genetic disorder that's completely different. You're not supposed to see a doctor until you are at least 55 to 60. Currently, as I've told you, 50 is the new 30. Yeah. So that's the whole idea. You know what I mean? Everything is about the stress and lack of time for ourselves. Now, the commonest cause of sickness in the UK in 2016 was neck pain, low back pain, and depression. And they attributed the neck pain because you are bending your head all the time, looking into your smartphone, checking your WhatsApp, no Facebook, way. Instagram, or whatever you're using, or Twitter, or whatever it is. Can you believe that this didn't exist in 2010? That's the commonest cause of being sick, not going to work in the UK in 2016. Wow. I usually advise all my patients, if they are addicted to that extent, is that to check your phone three times per day. When you wake up in the morning, at two o'clock after your lunch, and at eight o'clock before you take your night shower. And that's it. Don't get that electronic tag attached to your body. You get depressed, you lose your social skill, you get stressed, you get short circuit. Be free out of that. And I hope I could create a movement, dump your phone during the day. It will be the best thing. Go to any 
shop, go to any hospital, go to any factory, anytime the patient, the patient or the family or the visitor or the worker have time for themselves, they're standing in the corner with a little bit head down looking at their smartphone. That's wrong. They don't communicate. I know families in the same house texting each other rather than talking yeah. to each other. Yeah. It reached to that stage. We're becoming computer slaves. And this will destroy the last thing that we have, which is the physical connections and intimacy. So, Sharif, are you telling me that when a patient presents to your surgery and they're coming in with all these conditions, ailments, back pain, uh, depression, anxiety, uh, are you taking the easy option, the easy way out, like the vast, vast majority of doctors are by treating with antidepressants, um, anti-pain medication, or are you saying what you're essentially saying to me, that they need to sort of change their lifestyle first before you start treating them with any of these types of medications? That's a very smart question, Dennis, and I'll give you three examples. Mm. The first example, this is a high court English judge who went to his general practitioner, gave him a tablet to prevent him from having a heart attack. The judge took that tablet happily. Within four to six weeks, he couldn't walk. And he started forgetting everything he could imagine. And um, he started giving slurred speech. So they said, oh my God, he developed vascular dementia. And he has severe form of arthritis. He might require hip replacement. His daughter, who is... Um, uh, very smart girl, decided to seek second opinion. And she got my name from the internet, I think. So we get a very interesting referral. We don't think that it might be your field, but I'd like you to look at him because we might think that there is something wrong in here. So, in fact, the flown in uh, came in a wheelchair. A guy who was three months ago could swim, could walk without one single problem. So we done the basic tests for him. We scanned his neck. He has no carotid artery disease. We scanned his body. No evidence of peripheral vascular disease. So I sat and explained to him if there's any problem. And in fact, the guy looks sick, grayish. His blood looks normal. So um, I've asked, have you have taken any tablet recently? Nothing of particular, said zero. Oh, no. Um, almost four months or three months ago, I went to my general practitioner and he gave me this 80 milligram of statin. He's a big guy, so they give him 80 milligram of statin. And then when this happened, they started giving me medication for dementia. And then I was a little bit down on myself. Remember, a judge. Yeah. Down on myself, losing my self-confidence. They start putting me on antidepressants. And then after that, because of arthritis, they started giving me uh, medication, painkillers for, for, for it, give me a problem with my stomach, so start giving me uh, protein pump inhibitors, omoprazole and gafiscone and all this stuff. So suddenly a guy who had zero medication becoming on seven tablets, seven tablets, and he's in a wheelchair. So I said, you are on this medication, and I think 
what we need is to stop these tablets. And let's see what's going on. And trust me, you'll be another man we're going to see you in six weeks. He didn't believe it. I said, trust me in this. Give me the chance to treat you for six weeks. And he asked, but my cholesterol is 5.6. I said, cholesterol is your best friend and I'm going to get you convinced. He came to me in six weeks, walking, shaving, in a very high elite suit. And he told me one thing. If you ever need a statement from me about what happened because of these tablets, I'll be happy to make it available for everybody. This is one thing. 45 years old accountant. You know how accountants have a very good brain and always up to scratch with everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, random check for his new mortgage, found that his cholesterol was 6.9. So they decided to put him on a cholesterol tablet. Suddenly the guy feeling unwell, lack of energy. And his wife starting to discover that the guy have erectile dysfunction. And then the guy started having blurry vision. And after two years, he almost couldn't carry on doing his job. And he'd been pumped up with a lot of Prozac and a lot of Procidin. Antidepressants. Yeah burning all the Viagra in the pharmacy without any effect. <laughs> and then he'd been sent to me because they thought that he might have an aortic occlusive disease and that's why he had erectile dysfunction. And when I was talking, speaking to the guy, even his wife saw that he might have an affair, that's why he's not interested in her. To which yeah, the guy yeah, yeah. loved his wife. So I started taking a detailed history from him. So two years ago, this guy was totally normal. He went on and he had a random check of his cholesterol level and then they find 6.9 and they give him this medication. So again, I said, when did you check your cholesterol? Oh, last December. So I said, first of all, in Ireland, I don't like to check the cholesterol at all. However, if you check it, check it between April and August because the sunshine is good so that it will not falsely elevate it. After that, you have no sunshine, it will be falsely elevated. Second, in primary prevention, I never prescribe any medication. It's life ch- lifestyle changes. So you eat well, you drink well, you avoid sugar, avoid smoking, exercise, and that's what we do. Within three months, the guy was back again walking, and every Christmas for the past eight years, I get a fantastic car from him with his family and his three new kids. So he has six kids now. That's 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 absolutely fantastic to hear. <laughs> that's brilliant. That is uh, honestly so heartwarming to hear a story like that. So, but are you telling me, Sharif, that you took out, didn't even take take out your script? You just told him this is what you need to stop doing, and this is how your life will change. Did, was there anything that you even prescribed for him? You just essentially said this is this is what needs to happen in terms of your lifestyle factors. This needs to change. You need to stop the statins. You need to stop the rest of the drugs. And immediately everything else eradicated? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely, yes. And not true to that extent. We are proud to say that we are one of the few units in the whole world, maybe, that don't practice defensive medicine. You currently go to your physician. He look at you are taking 10 medications. He doesn't take the effort to look in the MEMS or go online to see which one interacts with which and then try to cut down in order to make things better. I go in and I check 
every tablet and the reason for it. And if I don't have a clinical indication for it, I am, do not hesitate ever to change it or to upgrade it or to cancel it. We have a good name that if you come to me, you go out with 50% less medication. That's and the patient always are delighted with that. Compliance is very poor with the patient. Patients do anything to take less tablets rather than more tablets. And trust me, the less the patient takes, the better we'll get. Because anything you take interact. And the interaction, some of them we don't know about. And that's a major problem. Basically, what you need for any patient is their medication to be optimized for the best. Unfortunately, we do not check whether the patient is a fast metabolizer or slow metabolizer. Because some of the tablets doesn't suit the fast metabolizers, and some of the tablets doesn't suit the slow metabolizers. There's antihypertensive give it to the fast metabolizers, and what happened? They just drop their blood pressure so hard that they cannot function. And some patients give it to slow metabolizers that they don't have the effect. However, some medication will suit them, and some medication don't suit them. And that's why you have to talk to the patient, take a proper history, see exactly how they interacted, phone their primary physician. You have to have time with the patient, to which a lot of people ignore this primary fact. And is it a holistic approach where you have a team all around you, uh, not just yourself, but nurses, physiotherapists, even dietitians that allow for the patient to essentially uh, revolutionize their life? Everything is about teamwork. You cannot perform any success story without a strong team behind you. And the team goes around the core idea. Nurses, doctors, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, social workers, nutritionists, and dietitians. The whole goes in one circle in order to provide the safest environment for the patient. Again, primary prevention is far superior than anything. If I'll be able to prevent that problem from happening, it's far superior than doing any intervention. What to you, Sharif, is the perfect life? Perfect life is basically you have to have what's called intermittent fasting. Don't eat after 6 p.m. until 10 a.m. next day. This is, this is a, not to cut across you, Sharif, but this is a massive fad that's going on in the fitness industry at the moment. Is it evidence-based? Autophagy, the guy who got the Nobel Prize for autophagy, is very important to see that when you starve the cell, it's like the control I'll delete when your computer crash. Yeah. It takes every bad part of your body and dump it into the trash. So if you have a bad cell that's going to be cancerous, it dies. If you had a bad cell that's going to do blocked of your heart, it goes away. And they're using it now in Alzheimer, in cardiovascular, in osteoarthritis, in stem cell therapy, in every part of the body. And there's a lot of research going on it. Remember, when you starve, is very important. But starving in its own is not enough. So if you want to create a good program for yourself, apart from unconditional love and happiness, you have to have intermittent fasting from 6 o'clock in the evening until 10 o'clock next day. You have to drink at least 3 liters of good water. The other thing which is very important is the microbiome, which is 
living over your skin. It's controlling every part of your body. And what, what is the microbiome, Sharif? Okay, so people think that I'm human and I'm clean. In fact, we are the host for the bacteria. And the bacteria lives on your skin. We have very close 1.3 bacteria for every human cell. There's more than 750 trillion bacteria on your body. And that's what you need to make them good for you and work for you. So the microbiome, in order to improve, the only natural thing is eating full fat natural yogurt. So happiness, a lot of unconditional love, three liters of water, intermittent fasting from six o'clock in the evening to 10 o'clock in the morning, and exercise 30 minutes every day of walking or some endurance exercise will be great. However, a lot of people said we can't run or we can't do endurance exercise. Walking for 30 minutes is fantastic. And Sharif, should, should I be taking um, supplements? Should I be taking some vitamins or vitamins for, for, for our home guests, obviously? Fantastic question. All Cochrane reviews, systemic reviews, meta-analysis have shown that synthetic vitamins, which is all available in the market to be taking, is total waste of time, money, and dangers. Oh, sorry, I, I'm going to have to cut across you there. So if you're telling me that taking vitamins is not helping. In fact, it's harmful. It's synthetic. It's in a capsule. When you're talking about vitamin C, I'm talking about eating an orange or squeezing a lemon. If we're talking about vitamin B, eating good amount of vitamin D or... If you're talking about vitamin D, you need to have a lot of sunshine because that's the whole idea. Synthetic vitamins are dangerous and harmful. You must stay away from it. You need to eat natural food in order to do that. In fact, three weeks ago, I've given a presentation to um, uh, Functional Medicine of Ireland and they asked me to talk. One of my part of my talk was about vitamins. I shocked them when I showed them that. And in fact, it wasn't my uh, finding. It was all the Cochrane reviews and systemic reviews. And a lot of people get angry. I said, but why are you angry at me? I'm just showing the recent publication and the in-time knowledge that we have now. The old knowledge doesn't exist. And all the vitamins are great if you take it from its natural sources. Yeah. Processed vitamins, meaning that synthetic vitamins are totally Waste of time, harmful, dangerous to the human body. But Sharif, what about the people from uh, underprivileged backgrounds who aren't able to afford the you know, pro proper supplementation of, of correct foods? That they, they, they essentially don't have enough money to pay for you know, the best products and all they can afford is their McDonald's or their Burger Kings or whatever else. I'm afraid to tell you that people who live in a very poor, undeveloped area in the places like Africa, Middle East, China, India, they eat healthier than what you eat in here. Full stop. <laughs> you heard it here first. I want to go back to the microbiome uh, and, and the, uh, the bacteria living in, on the surface of our skin, but also within our gut. There's new evidence to suggest that it's taking control of it's 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 taking control of our brain is it, can you can I explain that explain that a little bit more very good to me? very good it's the uh, 
basic, the microbiome was discovered by NASA. They're trying to have clean astronauts getting out to the outer space, clean astronauts coming back in order to see exactly what's happening. And this is the first time to discover this microbiome in the human body. However, when they discover the, the amount of microbiomes in the body, they're starting to think how it could affect depression, cancer, cardiovascular disease, happiness, micro biocompatibility between you and your girlfriend or your girlfriend and her boyfriend or whoever he is. And they start to find amazing findings. And that's the whole idea of the microbiome. That science is expanding rapidly. It will tell us exactly what's going on. Remember, the first thing about the microbiome was the bacteria in your colon. When we say that we have a good bacteria and bad bacteria, and when we take antibiotic, the, it kills the good bacteria and make the bad bacteria. And we only saw that it's only in the colon. It's in every part in your body. It's in your eyes, in your mouth, in your nose, in your ears, in your skin, in your lips, everywhere. And how could I put it for you about it and the human body? Let's see, there's two partners sitting together. They met once and decided to have a relationship. And then after a couple of meetings, you hear, oh, they weren't biocompatible. Yes. People say, what do you mean they weren't biocompatible? They look great together. Now there's a science behind it. Their microbiome did not interact well, and that's why there was a repellent effect between both of them. Sometimes going to say, I clicked with this guy. And some going to say that, God, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> the minute I've seen this guy, I just hated his guts. It's not from the first look. There is scientific evidence behind it. They studied so hard. They find that the people who are living in an intimacy relationship are much more happier because their microbiome cross-fertilizes between each other. However, the people who live at the same house and they do not interact together, they're miserable. They're fighting a lot and they don't have this connection. So, so it's, it's not about compatibility, it's about biocompatibility. It's biocompatibility all the time. <laughs> that is absolutely fascinating. <laughs> so you're telling me that... I need to be compatible, biocompatible with my girlfriend for us to have a positive functional relationship. There's a lot of studies about fertility, about sexual transmitted disease, and about the ability to be happy. Remember, that science is still in its infancy. The more you read about it, the more you could expand your horizon. But it would be one of the major breakthroughs in medicine is microbiome and autophagy. How would you like to be remembered, Sharif? Hard-working guy, pioneering surgeon, change the concept of everything in medicine. And to you, Sharif, what is the meaning of life? Happiness. Happiness over everything else? Happiness. If you're not happy, you're dead. If, and if you're not living, you're dead too. Exactly. Sharif, thank you so much for, for taking the time out to speak to me. Before I finish, I really would like for you to sort of very, very briefly and concisely kind of tell me exactly how medical study should go forward and how we should bring the new era, a new advancement of medical science. Currently, the medical school is excessively long. By the time you finish your second year, Everything that's been taught in the first year become obsolete. By the time you finish your internship, everything in the books are totally obsolete. It's all about in-time knowledge. 
Some of these students are best performing at 7 o'clock in the morning. Some of the students are best performing at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I cannot put sections and lectures at 7 o'clock and divide or devoid the other guy at 2 o'clock from his best performance. So we have to have online 24-7 availability of everything. The idea of a lecture room where people sit and listen to the lecture is obsolete and to the birds. Everything has to be done online, digitalized, holograms. You have to understand that the current situation of teaching is obsolete. We need to go back in, as things goes, you learn because any fixed idea always changes. Thank you so much for taking the time out to speak to me this afternoon, Sharif. It's, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure to, to have you, to speak to you and to hear your, your thought process. Um, just let us know where we can, maybe if someone might have a question from the podcast or maybe able to reach out to you. I know that you have an Instagram page newly set up and also a Facebook page. Where else could, could people uh, see some of your research and some of your material? Everything is on uh, ResearchGate, Lincoln, uh, Facebook, and Instagram. And it's very important to understand that I don't have a personal Facebook page, by the way. And um, I think that if you need anything, you could get me through the HSC website or through the Goldwell Clinic website. You have my emails over there. And I'd be delighted to answer any questions. Folks, that was Professor Sharif Sultan. Thank you so much for listening and uh, we'll see you again.